Welcome back to the Badass Literature Society, where badasses come together to rate and review novels recommended by you. Hi, I'm Michael. This is Barbara. This month, we read Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. We'll split the podcast into two sections, a spoiler-free discussion and our overall score, and then a more in-depth discussion of the plot and the ending, which will obviously be spoiler-heavy, as well as our individual scores for the book. But first, let's talk about the author. Tamsin Moore is the best-selling author of the Locked Tomb Trilogy, which begins with Gideon the Ninth, the book we're talking about today, continues with Harrow the Ninth, and was originally planned to conclude with Electo the Ninth, but uh, is now, there's going to be a, an in-between book, I believe it's called, is it Nona the Ninth? Do you remember the name of the uh, the third book? Yeah, I, I believe it's something like that, Nona. I think that's it. It's close to that, but it's now going to be a quadrology instead of the planned trilogy. Uh, her short fiction has been nominated for the Nebula Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, the World Fantasy Award, and the U.G. Foster Memorial Award. A Kiwi, she has spent most of her life in Howick, New Zealand, with time living in Waikuku and Central Wellington. She currently lives and works in Oxford in the United Kingdom. Barbara, you want to tell us about some of the uh, awards this book has been nominated for and won? Sure. This was originally published on September 10th of 2019. The genre is a little all over the place, with fantasy, science fiction, horror, and mystery. It is 448 pages if you have the hard copy, and it currently has a 4.2 on Goodreads, a 4.8 on Barnes and Nobles, and a 4.6 on Audible. And it was nominated for the following awards. The Hugo Award for Best Novel in 2020, the Nebula Award for Best Novel in 2019, the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel in 2020, the British Fantasy Award for Best Newcomer, which is also called the Sydney J. Bounds Award in 2020, the Goodreads Choice Award for Science Fiction and Debut Novel back in 2019, the Dragon Award for Best Science Fiction Novel in 2020, and the Book Nest Award for Best Debut Novel in 2019. And it actually won the Locus Award for Best First Novel in 2020. So we thought it would be important for readers to know what, if any, representation is or are included in the book or in the books that we read. So starting with this episode, we'll be including this segment. Let's talk about representation. In this book, there are minor and side POC characters. There are LGBTQ plus characters, but there are no persons with disabilities. Throwing it back to you, Michael. So let's talk about the uh, the, the description of the book. Uh, the emperor needs necromancers. The ninth necromancer needs a swordswoman. Gideon has a sword, some dirty magazines, and no more time for undead bullshit. Brought up by unfriendly, ossifying nuns, ancient retainers, and countless skeletons, Gideon is ready to abandon a life of servitude and an afterlife as a reanimated corpse. She packs up her sword, her shoes, and her dirty magazine and prepares to launch her daring escape. But her childhood nemesis won't set her free without a service. Harrowhark... Nonagesimus, reverend daughter of the Ninth House and bone witch extraordinaire, has been summoned into action. The emperor has invited the heirs to each of his loyal houses to a deadly trial of wits and skill. If Harrowhark succeeds, she will become an immortal, all-powerful servant of the resurrection. But no necromancer can ascend without their cavalier. Without Gideon's sword, Harrow will fail and the Ninth House will die. Of course, some things are better left dead. What did you think of Gideon of the Ninth? And remember, no spoilers. So I really love this book. It sounded interesting to me and the cover is just amazing, but I was pleasantly shocked at how much I really liked it. It did take me a while to really get into it though. I'd say almost 30% in which is not a good thing, but 
I was worried I was going to stay that way, but it didn't. And I couldn't put it down after that. It was a great cast of, it has a great cast of characters and a really interesting story once it picks up. So I also really liked this book. Uh, I uh, was super intrigued by the description of this one when it was recommended to us. And like Barbara said, the cover is really, really cool. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should be looking that up right now as you're listening. It's a, it's a really, really cool looking cover. But uh, it it was hard to get into. I don't know if it was 30% or maybe a little bit more for me, but it uh, it definitely has a slow start. When you finish it, you'll understand why, because it's, I mean, it's world building, right? So this is, it's going to be a series, uh, a quadrology, so... I got to do a little bit of that, but um, it, it was definitely, I was also concerned that the whole book was going to be like that uh, and was very, very happy that it was not. Uh, and that when we got to like where things really picked up, it, you know, it became a book that I was dreading to pick up because of how slow it was. And it turned into a book that I couldn't put down because I wanted to finish it. So I really enjoyed it. So as you guys know, we won't go into our individual ratings at this point. You've got to wait for that. Uh, we are also changing up our rating system a bit this season. So instead of rating the book against all the books we've ever read on the show, we're going to break it up into seasons. So since this is the first episode of season three, this is our first rating of this group. Uh, our group score for this one was an eight and a half out of 10. So would you recommend this book? For, for me, absolutely, yes. Uh, I, I think it's a book that's easy. Let me backtrack. I, so yes, I would recommend it. Going into it, I, I thought it was going to be a book that not only would be difficult to recommend, but I honestly one that I didn't think like Lauren, for example, would even enjoy. And for those of you that have been listening, you know that she's not as big of a fan of fantasy and sci-fi as we are. And going into this, it looks like that's what it's going to be. But it's it's like Barbara mentioned before when she was talking about what she liked about it. It's so genre bending. I think it's a book that actually would be easy to recommend to darn near anybody. I mean, in, unless there's there obviously there's certain people that are just like so set in their ways that they only want to read romance. They only want to read a certain style and that's not fantasy and sci-fi. And this obviously does have some of that in there, but yeah, I, I would absolutely recommend this one. It was a good book. So I would recommend this, but with the caveat that the book is slow at the beginning and you really need to push through that to get to the really good stuff because it gets really good. Normally it's hard to recommend a fantasy slash like science fiction book to people who don't typically read those books. But I think this one's such a like genre mash, like or a, a genre mashup, and I think people who don't normally like those would enjoy it, especially with the mystery slash like horror aspect that this book has on top of the fantasy and science fiction. I think what's cool about this book it has all of those genres in a little bit of it, so it's not like high intensity, high fantasy, or high intensity like science fiction, and just kind of sprinkles it in there in the sense that it's not like based in our world, but it has like real world issues and all that stuff going on on top of the whole mystery horror aspect too, for people who like those books as well. All right. For those of you leaving us here in a little bit, don't forget to give us a rating if you like us uh, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram in both places. Our handle is at Badass Lit Pod. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and a rating or a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Uh, that stuff's really important. We'd really appreciate it if you did do that, if you, uh, if you have an opinion. Also, if you've got a book you want us to read or if you've got an idea for a bonus episode, please let us know. Uh, either let us know by sending us a message on Facebook or Instagram or you could send us an email. Now for a short preview of our next episode. Next month, we are reading Strange Practice by Vivian Shaw, which was recommended to us by Connie. Thank you, Connie.
So the back of a book reads, Greta Helsing inherited the family's highly specialized and highly peculiar medical practice. In her consulting rooms, Dr. Helsing treats the undead for a host of ills. Vocal strain in banshees, arthritis in barrow whites, and entropy in mummies. Although barely making ends meet, this is just the quiet, supernatural, adjacent life Greta's been groomed for since childhood. Until a sect of murderous monks emerges, killing human and undead Londoners alike. As terror, as terror takes hold of the city, Greta must use her unusual skills to, top, to stop the occult if she hopes to save her practice and her life. I'm excited for this one. It sounds interesting. I'm all about uh, Helsing, so I'm curious to yep. know how this is going to go. Yeah, me too. So remember, the second part of our podcast is going to be an in-depth look at Gideon the Ninth. So if you do want to read this book, stop listening now. Just fair warning, there's going to be plenty of spoilers to come. There's lots of twists and turns in this one. Uh, so And come back and listen to the rest when you're done reading. Hey guys, my name's Abby and I co-host the Book Life Podcast with my best friend Mo. We cover fantasy, sci-fi, and historical fiction books and talk book-related topics like our favorite character types, world building, and books versus their movies. New episodes drop every Monday on your favorite platform. Now, back to your show. Now, for those of you sticking around for the spoilers, here we go. So the first thing we talk about, like we do every episode, or at least have for a while now, uh, the Badass Character Award. Barbara, who are you nominating for the Badass Character Award? This is really hard for me to choose because I feel like literally everyone in this book was a badass. Every like I, I think I could have a good defense for every character if someone would pick like, oh yes, this one. Because all of them were badasses in their own way. But since I have to pick... I'm going to have to pick Gideon with Harrow as a close second for me, just because of everything that Gideon, especially since it's kind of her, I feel like her story, since we follow her around, even though it's written third person perspective, it's still her perspective that we are seeing. So got to hand it down to Miss Gideon. So when I first sat down and thought about this, I was also kind of on the fence, just like you were, Barbara, trying to pick between the two of them. But for me, it actually slid the other direction. Uh, and, and Harrow was uh, was my nomination for the Badass Character Award. I think, I mean, so, I mean, number one, she is clearly a badass. Like the stuff that she's willing to, able to do and willing to endure as we're going through like the trials and tribulations in this book. But Sure, she literally is a prodigy. Right. I think also, though, for me, and I, and I just have to be honest about this up front, is that like I'm a little bit biased, not because I knew Harrow going into it, but because fantasy wise, I've always loved necromancers. Um, and so when a necromancer is one of the two choices, then, then I'm probably more likely to lean that way. Just, just for that reason, that was but the reason I, mean, I was really excited for this. You book. had like nine different necromancers to pick from Michael. <laughs> and Harrow is clearly the most badass of the other nine <laughs> necromancers. So if I'm just going with necromancers, I mean, unless I guess I'm going to nominate like the people in like end game at the end of the book, but that seems kind of silly. I mean, we were just looking up how to pronounce her name. Uh, Kythria, Kithria, Kithariah, Kithariah. That's another. I mean, so I mean, other than Harrow, she's probably the most badass necromancer since she's like the only actual lictor we get to see in this book. And she's obviously like, no, way more... we, 
E uh Ionthe is actually a lictor as well. So Okay, but she's like a baby lictor. She becomes a lictor Same at the end. Same with Harrow. So she's the only so Kitharia is the first full blown senior lictor uh, uh that we see in the book and is also, I mean, in that that scene that we'll talk about later, clearly much more powerful than the two of them. But anyway, badass character award I picked I picked Harrow. So I don't know. How do we handle this, Barbara? We've we've picked two different characters. There's only two of us. There's no They both win. They both win. Easy enough, I guess. They both get uh, we'll cut the award in half. Mean girl style, yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> well, that, that'll, that'll work. We'll do it that way. So uh, before we get into a lot of the like discussion questions and stuff, let's just talk about the book. Okay. So book is set in not our universe, and there are houses per planet. So there's nine houses, and each house is in its own little planet, hence the there's this is where the sci-fi kind of creeps in. And the, like the back of the book says, the emperor kind of sends out a little SOS, I want you. So they all go to the first house, which is the first planet, meet up there. And I'm going to butcher the name, Kayan House or Kien House. Uh, I don't know how you say Kanan House. Kanan. And they all pretty much get told that they have to solve like these riddles and puzzles within the house to become lictors essentially and then you meet uh, the whole rest of the houses and per house so it, it, there's the necromancer and then their cavalier is how it works so it's two per house except for the third house because they're twins and they claim that they were bo- both born at the same time which is obviously not probable but you know maybe in this fantasy world that was but everyone else is just two and you kind of get Gideon's perspective of just walking out around the house, kind of inspecting the house, meeting new people because she's never left her planet. So she doesn't really, I feel like she's kind of awkward in how she handles people in the beginning. And then that's when the book kind of shifts into a murder mystery because all of a sudden these two characters from one of the houses die And they don't know how or why because they've been locked in this planet and only them for, I think it's about three months when it jumps to that point. I think that's right. So, yeah. So it's like you don't know who killed them and what's going on there. And so it kind of turns into this murder mystery to see who, who, who done it. And you kind of get this creepy sense that the house is the one who attacked him. Because of a character named Teacher, who's the one who's kind of instigating this whole puzzle piece of the house and solving things to be a lictor, kind of says like, hey, the the house is creepy, there's people here, like, just watch out type thing. I think it would be safe to say that Teacher is like the master of arms of this tournament. I don't know what that means, but sure. He's running the tournament. Oh, okay. Yeah, pretty much. So, and that's kind of where we start with that. And there's some interesting characters that you meet throughout there. I would even argue that almost all of the characters in this one that you meet are interesting. Like there's, there's not one I dis well, like yeah. disliked in the sense that I was like, eh, I don't really care about reading them. They right. all are very interesting on all very different and all seem very like they have their own personality, personality. They all have different powers, which I thought was interesting and the book does, I think, a good job of you learning a little bit about them throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. And I, like, it's one of the first 
fantasy books, I mean, let's be honest, like most fantasy books have a lot of characters. Yeah. Some of those characters are inevitably what we're going to, what I'm going to call throwaway characters and that like, they're not super important to the plot and they're kind of forgettable. And I didn't really think this book had any of those. Like, I think the people that they introduce you to, they're all at least like somewhat relevant to the story at whole. I think they're all relevant to the plot too. Like they all mm-hmm. have a significance to it. It's not just like you said, a throwaway character just to have. Now, partly, I guess, and I did, I just thought of this. It, it probably helped that this book is about necromancers who are summoning skeletons to do their bidding and like do the serving skeletons. Of Cause not all of them can do that. Michael constructs. They're summoning con- bone. Not constructs all of them are, can do that. That's what I'm saying. Literally the only ones, the, who can- the servants, the servants of Canaan house that were serving food and stuff were all skeletons. Yes, constructs. So it's helpful that all of those, like what would normally be like the super side characters were bone constructs instead of actual people. Yes. So maybe that plays into some of the why there wasn't any throwaway characters. since Like the chef probably would have had a name and the server might have had a name if they weren't all bone constructs. So I was meaning by that. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so the first house is is Canaan House, which is where the, the setting where most of the book takes place, where all the people have gathered for this challenge. Teacher, which he's only ever referred to as Teacher, teacher um, yeah. is the main one in First House. I think, I mean, you, you were just mentioning that, that the Emperor was part of that technically, but it, it kind of, I got the vibe that the Emperor really hadn't been to this part of the uh, the universe in a I don't think he time. can step foot in the planets or something like that is what I yeah. garnered. It seemed like something that we might. So, just as an as an aside here, that you don't really get introduced to the emperor until the very, very end of the book, and it kind of seemed like you might get more about why he can't come back in the sequel. At least that was the kind of the vibe I got at the end. But right, but yeah, so that that's the first house. Second house would be Judith and Martha. Judith is the necromancer. Martha is her cavalier, and they're both like described as military esque, like they're they don't wear what all the other houses wear as far as like the necromancers wear like robes and that kind of stuff to be, to show that they're the necromancers. Whereas like Judith, Judith wears, what is it like? It's not fatigues, but military, military uh, garb, garb. Yeah. So then they're kind of, they like to think that they're the, the ones in charge when things kind of go awry. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. The the third house uh, was the the twins that Barbara was alluding to before, uh, Corona Beth and I- Iante. Is that mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so those those are the two twin sisters that uh, are both necromancers of a third house, and then their uh, cavalier was Prince Niberius Turn, and so they were. It was kind of a the other houses were all focused on like, like some academy or some specific schooling that they had. And the the third house was kind of the, the homeschooled house. Do you think that's a good way to describe that, Barbara? The, they were the, it was a, the less, less rigid background. I guess. Yeah. That was kind of the vibe I got. So yeah, that's, that's the third house. And we'll talk a lot more about the third house later. Cause those two characters, those three characters. Well, but right? so like you, you find out that they've been lying and that Corona Beth isn't a necromancer. Like, she doesn't no. have the ability to do any necromancy and they've been pretending in an Ianthe or Ianthe mm-hmm. Ianthe is the one who does it all. And they kind of just fake that they do. And Cronabeth is more of like the second cavalier yeah, that she learned true. how to fight. 
So you don't I learn that, that till was, the very end either. Right. That's but, later on. They kind of fool everyone to think that they, they both can do stuff. But the the yeah. book drops hints if you pick up on it that Chronobeth does not know how to do anything. So I thought it dropped hints that she was not as powerful because it's it's actually it's not just implied. It's straight up said at the beginning that Coronabeth is the more powerful necromancer and Iante is the less powerful of the two. Right. Um, and so I, I kind of got some hints that Coronabeth was maybe not as powerful as she seemed. But to find out at the very end that not only can she not do it, but Iante was faking it for her. Like that just shows yeah. how powerful the sister really was right but i don't know i feel like it did drop hints because there was a one point when they find the dead bodies the two dead bodies in the burning what is that called the where they burn body um, the incinerator crematorium i thought it was the incinerator that would be this yeah the incinerator Okay, where they find the incinerator and Isaac's like, oh, like, can't you feel it? Like, Chronobeth, like, can't you feel that those are bodies? And she's like, uh, <laughs> like, mm. and that's the biggest hint because she was, I was like, huh, because it seems like all of the other necromancers can, like, feel the presence of bodies of some sort, whereas she was just like, nah, and she kind of just, like, played it off. And some of that is, I mean, so obviously the, the hint was there. If you, That was obviously in the book and you, you just stated that. And this is one of those moments where I realized that, well, number one, I think I sometimes read too fast and I don't comprehend it, all the details as well as you do. But number two, uh, that I think you are also exceptionally talented at the getting the details out of the book, especially when it's a mystery, <laughs> which this book ended up kind of twisting into and... uh that's kind of your forte when it comes to prediction. I just feel like because there's no throwaway lines with it, these kind of stuff. So any little thing, like I kind of put it down on my the back of my mind and be like, is this going to come up? Like I could have sworn eyes were going to come up at some point and that never did. So I'm a slightly disappointed because they always mention people's eyes, their eye color, the hues, like all it was just eyes, eyes, eyes. And like, there is something going to have to do with eyeballs and it's going to be a thing. And then nothing happened. And I was slightly disappointed. So a little sad about that. But anyways, I digress with these houses. The fourth house would be Isaac and Jean Mar- Jean-Marie. I don't know if I'm saying her name right. Help Jean- me out here. Jean-Marie. Jean-Marie. Yes. So, Jean-Marie. What? Okay. Whatever. No, I'm just saying accent. it again. You're good. You have a weird accent going on there. But anyway, and they are the teenagers. And it's funny for in the beginning of the book, their talking script or whatever is different than everybody else's. And it, it's hilarious because they're like, they they don't really, like they're intimidated by Gideon. And so like when they're talking to her and stuff, they're not really talking to her until a little bit later in the book. And they're like, oh no, don't say that. You're embarrassing us. Don't do that. And it's just hilarious. I had a soft spot for them. And I thought it was funny. And like they kind of break the ice because she goes, like, oh, Gideon, how big are your muscles? <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. So they were the, the youngest ones in the book because they were just like no. barely f- like fresh teenagers. I think they were like 13 or something like that who were stuck in this murderous house. I, did, I mean, I, I, would, I also really enjoyed the way that she wrote their dialogue where it was in like a super small, like italicized Script, font. Yeah. Right? In like, in like <laughs> implying that they were like kind of like whispering behind the back. Yes. Like, yeah, exactly. Why would, you, why would you do that? Yeah. Like, like why would 
you say that? Why would you do that, Magnus? How dare you? No, you're embarrassing us. Yeah. That's literally how I pictured it in my head of like them talking. <laughs> it was it was pretty funny. I, that was pretty well done. It's a clever way of doing that. It was. Sure. Yeah, no, for sure. Fifth house, moving on from there, uh, are it was Lady Abigail Pent and Sir Magnus, which are the couple that get- Our first uh, couple that get axed. That get yeah. murdered. They are mm-hmm. the beginning of the murder mystery. And they're, and Magnus, for sure, is the one that Gideon kind of felt drawn to because he was the only one who was polite to her and said mm-hmm. hi to her while everyone else kind of ignored her or didn't really think much. Because it looks like the ninth house is kind of disliked by all the other houses is what yeah, I've I, got. I, I got that vibe as well. Yeah, So it was kind of- kind of sad that they were the first ones to die they were, i liked i mean I, I remember telling you this right, right after that scene i was like oh man i really liked magnus i know yeah. that's why i asked you i was like oh who's your favorite like non-main character you're like magnus i was like that's too bad <laughs> but that, 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 you didn't say no, that. did you know you no i didn't that, but i thought yeah. about it yes yes so moving on the sixth house is palamedes pa- no palam yes palamedes palamedes and camilla and uh, they are kind of the house that Harrow and Gideon kind of band together with and work together with, I feel like, to solve all the or try to solve the murder mystery and the mystery of the house and all that that's going on. They kind of have, a, I think, a mutual respect for one another. And they're probably out of all the other side characters, probably the one that you kind of get to know more of because we just spend more time with them. So then the seventh house, moving on from there, is one of the main characters of the book, which is uh, Duchess Dulcinea. Dulcinea. Yeah. All right. Dulcinea uh, was the, uh, is the necromancer of the seventh house. And should we talk about the, the specifics with her? Or are we going to save that for... We, no, we can. Later? I mean, we kind of did for the other ones. Okay. So Dulcinea and then her creepy Protisilous. Uh, yeah, Protisilous, her cavalier... And he's only creepy because he's been dead the whole time. But anyways, go right. on. Right. Yeah. You. So, but yeah. So <laughs> Dulcinea is one of the. I would say the main one of the main characters in the book. She's definitely. I think that the other necromancer or the other like a character from another house that Gideon feels closest to. She uh, has a crush the, on her, Michael. She, right. Well, and I think that she also considers her like a friend as well. Um, she kind of saw that Magnus and Magnus died, and uh, Dulcinea was one of the only other people at this challenge that. You know, it was actually kind to her and, um, right. you know, didn't treat her like crap. And so I think, and she also had a crush on was her. Was fascinated by her too. Like she actually yeah. talked to her. It wasn't, yeah, avoiding her. So like the reason that like her character is so interesting later in the book is that you find out that, um, well, first it's dropped that Dulcinea had some sort of like a, a cancer that was slowly killing her. Yeah, the, it's plagues the whole house. Like the, the seventh house necromancers apparently... It has a blood cancer problem. Yeah. So you find out about that. And then shortly after you find out about that, you find out that the actual Dulcinea died of that cancer. No, no, she killed her sweet pea. I thought she just let her like, she just let her die. Nope. Pretty sure she killed her. No. Okay. Well, she, the, the Dulcinea we knew for the entirety of the book was not actually Dulcinea. It was an imposter. Um, She, uh, she was look this up again. So I don't mispronounce it again. (laughs) So this book has very interesting names of pronunciation that we were butchering apparently the whole time. Kith Kitharea is who it actually was. Kitharea uh, was the 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 first lictor, right? Um, well, of the seventh house because there's lictors for all the houses, I believe. Yeah. So she was the first lictor for the 
seventh house and she was apparently the best one and apparently. she wanted revenge on the emperor for something we she, not quite it, sure what he did never super clear why he wanted she I, wanted to i kill think him, but. it was because of, he kind of briefly kind of touched upon it at the end was because she thought she didn't want to be a lictor first of all but then mm-hmm. she thought that if she turned into a lictor then she wouldn't die of the blood cancer that she had and instead she was stuck in this perpetual state of half dead half alive where she won't ever really die but she won't ever get to really live because she still has like a feeble body and and she is constantly like hacking up her lungs and all this stuff and so she's kind of in this perpetual craptastic living and i think she finally had i mean i would finally have enough after 10 freaking thousand years half dying like that for the rest of your life like that probably wasn't fun for her it's funny because I empathized with her. Yeah, I did too. I mean, I, to be honest, I thought she was a really cool character when you she actually introduced her. Because like, she she's, was. So she, so I was talking about earlier for the badass character when we were talking about other powerful necromancers. Like, holy crap, Batman. Like, she's so powerful. And like, Harrow and uh, uh, who was the other necromancer there at the end that was helping? Eonthe. Um, Eonthe. We're throwing like their best stuff at her and she's just swatting it away like she'd swat away like a mosquito, like just no big deal. And then she threw back like tenfold at them and without even like breaking a sweat. So yeah, super powerful. You and you find out also that she was actually the one murdering all these people. Correct. Um, trying to get the Emperor to come down to the planet Correct. to force him to come down so that she could she kill could him. Murder it him. Like, right? She mm-hmm. wanted to kill yep. him. Yep. Yeah. She could kill him. Uh, so yeah, that's that's who. Uh, it's like I mean, I guess that's appropriate to talk about her in the seventh house, and she was a member of the seventh house before she, was. she became mm-hmm. a lictor, and uh, so yep. So yeah, that's the seventh house. Yeah, she killed her the main the real seventh house oh, yeah, ne- um, real necromancer and the cavalier, and that's whose bodies were in that place that they found in the uh, incinerator. Correct, incinerator. Big words here, people. Big words. <laughs> Then we've got the eighth house, which was Silas in column as his cavalier. And they were an interesting house kind of. So they absolutely hate the ninth house pretty much because they said the ninth house wasn't even supposed to be a thing. And they are kind of the ones that practice necromancy that the other houses aren't too comfortable with which they call siphoning and they're an interesting pair because at first like they wanted nothing to do with gideon or the ninth house and then later on they kind of aren't great guys and they kind of die by their own i would say hubris because silas siphons off of column and to do that kind of like an out-of-body experience type thing where his like I would say like his soul type thing is kind of like walking among the crap. And so he leaves his body so he can't really feel the crap that's happening to him. And all these other souls of the house go in and pretty much kill them. So that was interesting. That was a fun little thing that happened to them. And then finally the ninth house, uh, which is obviously our two main characters, uh, Harrow Hark, who is the necromancer of the ninth house and Gideon, who is the cavalier Gideon Nav, the cavalier of the ninth house. Before we talk about details on the character, I did want to mention that I thought it was really interesting that the, um, so at the back of the book, there's a, there's a glossary of terms first, and then there's a document that goes over the people in each house that is supposedly written by somebody in universe. No, it's written by 
the second house, Judith. Written by Judith in the second house. Okay. Yeah. And so when you get to the ninth house and you're looking at the descriptions, (laughs) like it actually, like it's question marks. It says, we don't know. It's like, we don't know anything about them. Because they didn't until Harrowhark and Gideon showed up. Yeah. Apparently the ninth house doesn't like commune with the other ones, don't really hang out with the other ones, don't talk. They don't like send messages or whatever. They're kind of just by themselves. So it was interesting. I'm curious to know if we're going to find out more about like the whys behind that. Actually, I think we know why because of they murdered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they wanted to hide that fact. Yep. I actually do think that's why actually now I answered my own question. I think you might have. Yeah. So that's kind of a breakdown of all the characters in the different houses. Did you want to talk about all the uh, different murders and puzzles of? So I, th- I think we covered or? a lot of the murders. I definitely want to talk about the trials mm, we, though. I don't think we said everyone that got murdered. Oh, it was know, the uh, other ones then. Well, it was just pretty much everyone. <laughs> dies <laughs> everybody that we just named off gets killed except for a handful of people that survive right. the end. Uh, it was sad though because like you get to like know these characters and then they get off and you're like no and you like false sense of like they're like okay maybe like the mergers are that's done and then they all kind of like self-sacrifice each other to like save the other and it's this whole thing and they're like oh my gosh she has no problem George murdering R. R. Characters? characters no she surely does not no so yeah we can talk about so, I mean, pretty much i mean the murders were everybody like you said i mean at some point or another for whatever reason they all they were either killed or they died defending somebody mm-hmm. else or um some of them died in the trials which i, I do want to talk about those that, that that was kind of one of my favorite parts of the book was kind of getting to read through the puzzles you call them trials challenges puzzles Oh, I think it's all the above because it was so it was made so they could learn this recipe to become a lictor. Mm-hmm. And so they had to do different trials or puzzles to, like it, it was both like they first had to find the puzzle or the trial and then figure out how to accomplish in doing the trial or the puzzle. And then mm-hmm. once they completed it, they would get a key, but there was only one key per trial. So it didn't matter if you did, you could repeat, I guess, the trial over and over again, but you would never get the key if someone already grabbed it. So then it turned into this whole, all of them were competing to get the keys that would unlock a room in the house that would give you part of this recipe to become elixir, essentially, right? Right. Okay. Because they were getting, it was, they were getting a key and they were getting a part of the theorem, right? Like whatever Correct. part of the theorem that was used to solve that puzzle or to get through that yeah right it would teach you how like after you did the puzzle it'll teach you like why they did the puzzle and like how that connected to the theory or the theorem or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it they called it like all the above yeah to become a lictor essentially it was the 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 challenges though were really cool some of them reminded me of um you know like like puzzles or or things like that that you encounter in like fantasy rpg video games and yeah all the time mm-hmm. some of them also reminded me though because they so i mean they're some of them were pretty dark like some of them reminded me of like traps in like a saw movie or something like maybe <laughs> not to the same level of like torture but like there was that one that involved uh harrow having to siphon gideon mm-hmm. to be able to get through it and so like it's, i mean in some ways that is like it's you're having to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else to do it and that's kind of the recipe of a of a saw you know a saw challenge or a saw puzzle so i saw some parallels to that and some of the challenges but it was it was really interesting i thought that uh, the author did a really really good job uh not only 
So she laid them out in a way that was incredibly detailed so that we felt like we were part of it. But she also did it in a way where we, we, the reader, kind of got to solve the puzzle with them. Like she didn't give away a bunch of stuff up front. We felt like we were like, you know, doing it together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, that was the that was the puzzles and the the challenges and all that, which I thought were really neat. And obviously, the the book then builds up to this this I'm going to call it an epic ending because I think it really was an epic ending. Like you have this, I think the longest chapter in the book, right? The the chapter with mm-hmm. the the climactic fight scene was like a well, on the Kindle anyway it was like a 38 minute chapter or something like that. It was yeah. crazy, but it was also it felt like it went really quickly because like you're reading this epic action scene. Yeah, it really picks up towards the end when like everyone's kind of dropping like flies and then they discover how to be lictors and what that actually entails. And a lot of them want nothing to do with it, but obviously Anthe. And then you kind of look, or you hear about what happened with the ninth house. And that I thought that was interesting and why Harrow is the way she is. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the whole like genocide thing that happened. Yeah. They pretty much murdered 200 children anywhere from like, like babies to, I think it was like 16 year olds or something like that. So she could be born as a necromancer to guarantee the house that she would be a necromancer. And she knows this from a very young age with, I think is kind of weird for her parents to kind of throw that at, at, at a child. Right, so she yeah. pretty much is depressed all her childhood. And at one point kind of wants to, it looks like she kind of wants to kill herself. It seems like, right? Like she wants, like she's depressed and doesn't want to live anymore. So she tries to off herself by opening up the, the tomb that the ninth house is guarding is supposed to guard for the emperor. And she somehow is able to open the door to it and spins who knows how much time in this tomb and finds out what is in the tomb, which is a person, a, a lady yeah. in encased in ice essentially is all we know and survives. And then Gideon kind of wanted a tattletale on her and told the parents and the parents kind of off themselves because they thought it was a dishonor for her to do the one thing that they're not supposed to do. The one thing that the house is supposed to do is protect the tomb, but never enter it and never allow anyone to enter it. So they kind of off themselves and then Gideon was, or um, Hero was supposed to do that too. But then she decided that she wanted to live instead and doesn't. And that's why her and Gideon kind of have this hate relationship growing up, which was, a very eye-opening tell-all kind of thing that happened before the epiphany of the rest of the stuff that was going on that you learn like who was murdering everyone and the why behind it. Yeah. It just, it picks up the book, man. After you got that initial kind of, eh, I feel like it starts picking up for me, at least once getting starts kind of hanging out with the other characters and getting to know them. And then the first murder happens. And after that, it was just like a, a runaway for me. Yeah. Well, that, the, you mentioned that's actually a great segue into the the first question I want to ask, which is what just kind of a basic one. What did you like about the book? What did you dislike about the book? And at what point hooked you in? Yeah. So I loved all the different genres that this book had. I like a plethora of genres and it's hard to just come by a book that blends them all so seamlessly like this one did, especially because I just, I love them all. Like I like fantasy. I like sci-fi. I like horror. I like mystery. So it's like literally everything that I liked in a book wrapped into one. And I I honestly do think this was my favorite part or favorite aspect of the book because she did such a good job of doing that. 
I also love the great cast of characters, which is like creeping right next to like my favorite. I love me good cast of characters and like kind of we what we touched upon already. Like they were all so well written and I found myself caring about whether or not they survived to the end. And boy, was I disappointed. <laughs> like I was like, no, please don't, don't die yeah. on me. And oh man. But the only thing that I quote unquote disliked was just how slow it was at the beginning and how long it took to pick up. It's not even like, you know, a few chapters in. No, it's a good deal of chapters yeah. into the book. And I was just like, okay, like, come on, what's going on? Is this ever going to pick up? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to trot along at this kind of snail pace. And then, but I man, when it does pick up, it just freaking hits the ground running. And for me, like I said, it, I was really drawn into when Gideon finally starts interacting with all the characters because I think that's what she's done really well is character interacting with each other. Like their the humor that she brings for the characters or like just their dialect between one another is just really done well. Mm-hmm. And you get to learn about this world without kind of being like dropped like all this information dump you kind of learn a little bit with it without being not without not being told but shown to you know which is a very key element like I hate when authors just tell me something instead of just showing me how it's done I feel like she did a good job of showing this world to us through Gideon's eyes so for me I I liked a lot of the same things that you did I mean I I liked the characters I, I liked all of them like I said before I'm going to say not that I liked all the genres, but I liked the genre because I, I'm going to say that, uh, that that Tamsin Moore pretty much created her own genre when she wrote this book. It because she she so expertly interweaves all these different like tropes and these different ideas that come from these different genres and these different places and weaved it into this this her own thing, and and it was really really well done. The only thing I disliked is pretty much the same answer as what point I got hooked because for me it was like it was like 30 or 40% into the book before I was really interested and that first first 30 or 40% like that's you know like like Barbara said like it's not we're not talking about like a couple chapters or you know just like slogging through like the first 10% like that's a big chunk of the book and, and so if, if you if you think about this and the fact that you know we're we're both Barbara and I are both saying that that we, you know, the, the first 30 to 40% of the book was a slog. And now also knowing that our group rating for this one was an eight and a half should tell you how good the last, you know, seven, 60 to 70% of the book are, but, uh, or book is, I should say. And so, yeah, the, the point that really got me hooked in though, was at that mark when it, when it was the, the first murder happened. I think that was the, uh, the hooking point for me because that when that was when the book really hit the ground running, uh, and really found found its footing and, and the story just kind of took off from there and became less of a boring slog and more of a page turner. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely when when I got hooked in. All right, so let's talk about Gideon. Gideon is sometimes snarky, rude, or just plain mean. Did you like having a sometimes unlikable character as a narrator of this book? And when did you find yourself sympathetic? For me, I mean, I this was a... Gideon is definitely snarky, rude, and mean, but to say that she's just plain mean, and Barbara and I were talking about this before, and I kind of agree with her, I don't think it's fair to say she's just mean, because a lot of the mean comments that this is referencing is stuff that she's saying internally, and so we as the reader are knowing all these, you know, these terrible ideas that she's having about other people, but she's not like saying this stuff out loud for the most part, but I I liked her snarky attitude. I I thought, um, 
I thought it was interesting. It's a it's a different perspective for a main character than you normally get in these kind of books. You know, not really a hero, not really even an anti-hero, just kind of a I mean, it, just, it was just her sense of humor, like the, just the the snarky, dry. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, she makes fun of herself a lot. Self-deprecating is the word. Self-deprecating. Thank you. That is the word I was looking for. So, I mean, I did. I liked having a a, a main character that's a little bit different. Um, and, and, you know, she was, I don't know if she was unlikable. I would say she was unlikable from the perspective of the other characters in the book, maybe, <laughs> that they didn't like her very much. But yeah. I enjoyed uh, her, her as a character. I thought it was, it was, she was very entertaining. When did I find myself sympathizing with her? Probably there's a few moments where, so Gideon is a character that I think you can see is, is inherently like she's, she's broken in some ways because of her, her life and her past. And, you know, her parents died when she was really young and she spent her whole life with Harrow and Harrow has pretty much treated her like garbage that entire time and punished her. And there, there's a few times throughout in the book where you you see Gideon let her guard down a little bit, either with another character or even just like internally, like an internal monologue. And I think in those moments, that's when I sympathize with her because you, you she lets some of that like self-deprecating humor, but she uses his armor fade away and you see the real Gideon, how, how sad that she really is uh, a lot of the time because of how things have gone and, and what she wants out of that obviously some of that changes towards the end, but, um, but that's, that's definitely what I found sympathizing. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause I wouldn't class up, classify her as any of those things as, as far as like rude or just plain mean. Uh, is she really snarky? Yeah, I think so. But I feel like a lot of these characters kind of are, and that's probably why I liked everybody. And honestly, if anyone would be those things, I say that describes Hera more than Gideon. Cause Could I think it be because you're snarky, Barbara. <laughs> I I don't think I'm snarky. I don't know. Am I snarky, Michael? According to you, apparently. I honestly think Gideon acted that way to her own house, and honestly, mostly Harrow, which is understandable given how she was treated by them. Like you kind of learn early on how much Gideon absolutely hates the ninth house and just wants to leave there and never come back. And then you get this inner in her monologue of her saying how she wants to rub it in their faces once she becomes like this badass fighter for the emperor and all this other stuff. And then you slowly kind of like the book peels away those layers and you kind of figure, find out why it's because first off, she never knew her father. We don't know who her dad is. Her mother literally died after giving birth to her essentially and dropped off like in a spacesuit type thing at the ninth house. And she was raised by, these people who she thought hated her, but then she comes to find out that they didn't hate her. They actually were deathly afraid of her because of all the children, all 200 children that they murdered. She's the only one that survived the, the uh, genocide of children in the ninth house. And so it's not that they disliked her. They literally were afraid of her. And there's a moment in the book where she realizes like, what she was seeing in them wasn't hate. It was fear for her because of that. Uh, I don't, I don't think she was unlikable at all. Actually. That's why I really, I enjoyed her character. I, I loved her humor. Freaking loved her humor. I was giggling to myself like the whole freaking time. I think I was reading passages to Michael before he was even at a part. And I was like, okay, I promise I'm not going to spoil anything, but listen to this one. And he's like, okay, that's enough. <laughs> and I was like, what? It's just so funny. Cause it, to me, it was freaking hilarious. I, this is my type of humor to a T 
And then honestly, I sympathized with her right away from the moment when she started interacting with people outside her house specifically, because you could just tell how badly she wanted to socialize with other people, to be acknowledged by other people, to to be cared for or like have friendships with, with these other people. And you could tell how she truly and deeply cared for them once she built kind of this like rapport with them to the fact that once these people start dying off, she feels really guilty and she feels sad. And she even at one point, I think, breaks down because of it. And Hera is the one who's like, why do you care? They're dead. Like, it's they're dead. Let's get over this. And Gideon's like, wow, you have like no soul. And... Like, you know, these these were people and she cared about them. And I'd just like to mention my favorite scene with Gideon is literally when they just solved the first puzzle type thing that they have to do to get the key. And Harrow, like, used all this power and blah, blah, blah. And she kind of, like, faints. And Gideon, it literally is described in the book. Gideon sticks out her foot, one foot, to, like, quote-unquote, help get, um Harrow out like how you would you know kind of stick your foot out say like you drop something of small value and you're like oh I want to break the fall of this thing but like I'm not gonna go out of my way to like reach down try to grab it I'm just gonna stick my foot out to like maybe help it not like shatter before hitting the ground it'll hit my foot and she literally does that for Harrow and it just cracked me up like I think that was one of my favorite scenes because I think I read it like three times just laughing to myself when that happened it was a good scene. I agree. That was one of the yeah. ones you mentioned that you read to me, I think. Yeah. And also, I just wanted to point out, Barbara, you can't mention the wholesale slaughter of children without giving props to the OG slaughter of children, Anakin Skywalker. Okay. Well, I... Okay. You, you guys I, always bring up Harry Potter. I just figured oh, I'd throw out okay, well, I, I on my own. Okay. Well, I didn't know so. that happened, but okay, fine. Fair enough. All right. So moving on from there, let's talk about the world a little bit. Gideon the Ninth throws the reader into a unique world of necromancers and warriors. What did you think of the world that Tamsin Moore built in this book? And what were your favorite details? So I honestly feel like we haven't even scratched the surface of this world. It seems massive. And I feel like we've only gotten a hint of what's to come for the next upcoming books. It was a bit confusing at times, but I really enjoyed learning about the different houses and what a cavalier meant to their respective necromancers and really what a cavalier even was. I just loved the author's take on what a, ne- a necromancer was as well. Because like typically you see in other books, the necromancer is what? They just raise the dead. Like a person's dead, there's a dead body on the ground. Boop, there, there they are. There's them hanging out. But in this book, it just means a host of different things in different powers. Like you have the ninth house that specializes in bone. So they, she can take any tiny little inkling of a bone and make it into a whole skeleton of a whole person. So she needs just a bone to do that all the time. I think it's the fifth house that is the one that could speak with spirits and then she kind of dies and we don't get to see that, but it's hinted at that she was the one who could commune with the the, the dead, literally with spirits. And then you have like the six houses that are like really, really smart. And I feel like reason and deduction, I uh, like, I don't know. He's like good with something else. Like you have all of the houses that have different aspects of what a necromancer means. Love that about that. It just I really enjoyed the fresh new take on what necromancy means for this book, and I'm excited to read more of this world building and a unique world that she did, in fact, create. So just like you said, I mean, I, I 100% think we've barely scratched the surface of this world. The We don't know much about any of the other houses and the other planets that they live on, other than like the brief descriptions that we got. We, I mean, 
I hadn't really thought about this until I was reading uh, an article about this book after finishing it. And it, it described this book as a, effectively a locked house or locked room murder mystery. And it, it is like the whole thing for the most part, the, the meat of the book takes place all in Canaan house. They're all locked in Canaan house. And that's, that's all we see except for the beginning and the very end where the takes place you know, elsewhere. But I think though they, she's barely scratched the surface of this world. And I'm really excited to see where the next book is going to take us as, you know, as Harrow steps into the role of Lictor and, it's obviously, I mean, the, the implication at the end is that she's going to, the, the second book is going to take place in a lot more places than just one. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited to see how the world grows. My favorite details of this one, though, is um, because the be, because the book, or the, yeah, because the story took place almost entirely in Canaan House, I thought it was really cool that we got the details that we did about it. Uh, like every time they walked into a room, it you know, you could close your eyes and, and, and visualize it and it was there because of how well and how vivid the imagery was that she used. I thought she did a really good job of setting the scene and making uh, these, you know, these creepy laboratories in Canaan House uh, really come to life. Uh, and that it's was like my favorite detail. Murder house type Oh, setting. yeah. For sure. I mean, they're horror. like dungeons. Very like, horror. That's what I was like, of. that's why oh, yeah. there's the horror aspect of the book came into yeah. place. Gothic with this. horror. Yeah, gothic horror, 100%. Yeah. And I love that. Gothic horror is my jam. Okay, moving on from there, what are your thoughts about the relationship between Gideon and Harrow as it develops throughout the book? Gosh, so this was kind of hard to answer. I mean, it is, I guess it's not if I just focus on the end, but, you know, kind of like Barbara mentioned before, like for most of the book, Harrow is the unlikable character because she's not very nice. Uh, she she's pretty, she's pretty mean to Gideon. She's standoffish, too. She's like very she standoffish. She doesn't want to work. She doesn't work well with others. She treats Gideon like not like a peer or an equal, but as like a subservient slave-like being. And so to see the relationship effectively be that for, what, 85% of the book, and then uh, at the end to kind of understand that she 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 acts this way because of how she feels about what happened um, and the, that how she was created. And you kind of sympathize for for. Harrow a little bit, but at the same time, it's like, okay, but why are you just like attacking Gideon because of that? But it, I think it showed the, the when you get to see like their friendship, genuine friendship really blossom at the end and how they realize that, you know, maybe they've actually been friends all along, just a kind of strange friendship that, uh, that, that they were, they're building together. I really liked the way that their relationship evolved throughout the story. That was probably one of my favorite arcs, I guess, if you will, was like seeing their friendship uh, their relationship go from one of like servant and master to uh, one of, you know, friends who genuinely truly care about one another at the end. Uh, that was a really cool evolution. So I really enjoyed their relationship. I loved their banter and getting to learn why they hated each other. Although I feel like it's more of a Gideon hating Harrow and Harrow just, hating Gideon because of the fact that Gideon reminded her of what her parents did. And then just seeing their relationship grow into the friendship. And I don't know, maybe hinted it into a little more, maybe, I don't know, I guess we'll see. But their whole dynamic was so much fun to read about. And I think the book really shined when they were on the page together, personally. 
And I think learning their history and why Harrow treated Gideon the way that she did was really interesting and kind of made sense for the whole arc. And I thought it was really kind of sweet that Harrow was expecting Gideon to pretty much like hate her guts after she found out what happened. And Gideon was like, nah, son, like, I forgive you. It's cool. Like, we can be friends now. And it was just like this whole moment between them, which was really, really satisfying. So I really liked their relationship throughout the book and how it kind of grew, really, because it wasn't just like a night and day thing. Like they started having to work together because Gideon was like, Hey, Harold, like, no, like we need to work together because people are getting murdered and I'm not leaving you by yourself. So they started working together and started trusting each other. And it was just beautiful, beautiful friendship that blossomed into maybe something more. Maybe we'll see. Will we? Maybe. (laughs) So who is your favorite character, Barbara? That's hard. Cause I really, I actually really liked, all the characters. But I think between Gideon and Harrow. I knew you were going to pick Teacher. Teacher was going to be your favorite <laughs> yes, character. Yes, Teacher is my favorite character. So sad when he died. I, I cried. <laughs> I really liked Harrow between the two main characters. So I liked, and actually I loved Gideon at the beginning. But then the more we learned about Harrow, the more I leaned towards her character. And after the scene where she pretty much like bears her soul to Gideon, I feel like that really shined a new light on her character. And that that's kind of where I feel like I pivoted towards more of Harrow. And it just explained so much about her and her motivations for everything. And really her self-hate essentially is what it is. Like she pretty much hates that her parents did that. And she, I feel like she even called herself like an abomination or something like that at, at one point. A monster, I think. Yes, a monster. Correct. And she, you can just tell how much she truly cared for Gideon, but kind of like pretended like she didn't. And I feel like Gideon, like I said earlier, kind of was a, a daily reminder of what her parents did. And that's probably kind of why she grew up hating her in the beginning and then came to realize that Gideon was like the only person that cared for her or was there for her through everything. But yeah, obviously Gideon was a really close second to me. Just given her humor and how she kind of took everything in stride. So it was, it's hard to pick a favorite character because I really, really, really liked all of them. And I also liked all the side characters too, like Camilla and Corona Beth and even teacher. Yes. Especially teacher. He was hilarious, (laughs) but I thought he was kind of weird. Like I was like, something's going on with teacher. Like he ain't all there. And then Palamedes and just all of them were great. Although I thought, do, are we calling her fake do, do fake, fake seventh do house yeah. lady? Yeah. I thought she was sketched. There's something off about her. So, uh, my favorite character was Hera for a lot less uh, deep reasons than Barbara. I just I like necromancers, and Hera was a really really badass necromancer. And so, I, for the same reasons, I voted her the badass character award. The reasons why she was my favorite character. I mean, she's pretty much a badass necromancer. She She's only, well, I think, like 16 or 17, and she pretty much surpasses everybody as far as skill. Like, she really was a, a um, what is the word? When you're like a child prod- prodigy. She's essentially prodigy. a prodigy because yeah. of what she can do. Yeah, no, she effectively mm-hmm. was. So, yeah, she was my favorite character. Uh, let's see. Was the ending satisfying? Yes. Yes, it was. The ending was very satisfying hard stop no i'm just kidding yeah the ending was super satisfying it was the you had the whole epic fight scene like that 38 minute chapter i was talking about before um between 
not between fake Dulcinea uh, and uh, Harrow and Gideon and Camilla and oh, what is the other one that I forgot earlier? Her name starts with an I. Ianthi. Ianthi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but yes, one of the twins. And just like the that whole fight sequence was just, it was nonstop. It was action packed. It was, it was a lot of fun to read. It, you know, it broke your heart in the end when the only way Harrow could beat her uh, was to become a lictor. And the way you become a lictor is by uh, we absorbing this. Yeah, we never actually described soul. that of how to become a lictor, did we? So you become a lictor by absorbing the soul of your cavalier. Yes. And so at the very end, Gideon throws herself down on a big spike, effectively killing herself uh, and uh, allows Harrow to absorb her soul. And then with that done, Harrow was able to beat, uh, beat the big baddie. And so I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a satisfying ending. It was, I remember talking to Barbara cause she finished the book before me as per usual. I was like, God, I really hope like I'm feeling like Gideon's going to die at the end. And I, I really hope that's not true. And you know, she played it off as she always does and didn't give me any hints, but well, would you like me to say, yeah, Michael, you're so no. right. She did. <laughs> as much as I was expecting it, it still was not fun. Like I, I liked their relationship. I liked where it had gotten to. And so to have her die to save the day at the end was both a fitting ending for Gideon, but also a sad ending. So yeah, I, I thought that the ending was very satisfying. I thought it it tied, like learning all the big twists at the end about who Dulcinea actually was and um, everything going on in the plot there. It tied up. A bunch of stuff. It also set up a bunch of stuff for the next book as far as where Harrow is going to go because the next book is called Harrow the Ninth, right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. So it sets up where she's going to go next. It, it was. It was a very satisfying ending. Uh, to, to be honest with you, the, the ending definitely factored into my score uh, being as high as it was. I really enjoyed the ending. Yeah, uh, 100% agree with that. I thought the last part of the book where you find out who's been murdering everyone and the whys of why that was happening comes to a head. And I thought that was really, I thought that was done really well to find out who it was and that whole subplot of the book. And then you get, like Michael said, that uh, epic fight scene between Kither, Kither Aina or Kither, Kither A, whatever, how you pronounce her name. The big bad. Yeah. And even if she was like the big, big bad, like, I feel like, like I said, I empathize with her in the sense, like of how she described her life and what she was doing. And I'm curious, I hope that we get to know kind of more about her character. Cause I'm very interested to know like where, where she shifted. And the, that was just a really cool, like, in scene and then you kind of feel like all is lost and of course Gideon has to go and self-sacrifice herself so Harrow can become a lictor so and it kind of ends there with and then you kind of meet like the emperor essentially and I thought it broke my heart when Harrow's like because he was like oh like you know what can I do for you and she was like can you reverse this like I I want Gideon back I don't want to be a lictor and that was like broke my heart poor poor Harrow anyways I'm I feel like it it moved into what set up, I should say, 
Hero the Ninth, and I'm super excited to pick up the next book, or that book, essentially, just because I feel like it's going to explore what it means to be a lictor and how Hero is dealing with the consequences of becoming one, while also learning about the Emperor and how he kind of fits into the overall plot, because we get mentions of him, but, like, we really don't know what the heck he is and what his deal is, really, until, like, the very epilogue of this book, and he was just like, oh, like... The world's ending and you're like what the hell so it's kind of like this was like a story with within a story where you kind of get hints and pieces of what the overall story is going to be but this was a murder mystery in a creepy house one first yeah and i, I think we're gonna get more of the world too which i'm excited for right right super excited so i thought it was a, a satisfying ending because it luckily it answered a lot of the questions that i had and set up new questions of what's going to happen next for these like two people that survived. <laughs> right. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of survivors at the end of this book. No. So that's all the questions. So let's talk about our individual ratings. What did you, uh, what did you give this one? So I gave it a nine and I thought about giving it a bit lower just because of how long it took to get into it. But honestly, I didn't care. I was like, you know what, whatever, maybe, I de- so I definitely want to reread this book, knowing who was murdering, knew- knowing all this stuff. I want to reread it because I I read after the fact because I like sometimes I get obsessive with books after I really enjoy them, and I read that people said that if you pick up on the stuff that are we calling her by her real name or her fake name, fake her real name, fake. Uh, seventh house member but really Kitharia or however you pronounce her name Kitharia if you actually go back apparently and read what she says there's dual meanings the whole freaking time the whole time really yes and if if you don't know that going in you just kind of read it as like what the heck she's kind of like she was a little off like she said some weird stuff and she mentioned death a lot which makes sense for her character because she is in, in fact like we as far as we are aware she's dying right like she pretty much came over there to die essentially. So I kind of want to reread the book just to pick up on like, was she giving stuff away that we didn't even pick up on? Like I am very intrigued by that. And I feel like I'm giving you a long winded reason why I gave this a nine, but that's (laughs) why, because I feel like there's a lot of like rereading back on this to pick up on that. And yes, even though it doesn't pick up for a while, maybe I will appreciate the first part of the book now with new lenses because it sets up the story essentially. And you did say you were going to reread this before. Oh, I'm going to 100%. Like when I really, really like a book, I tend to reread them. Like I've reread some of my favorite books, not even once or twice. (laughs) More than that. So yeah, I give this a really high score as well. Uh, I give it an eight, uh, which I, I, uh, if I was just rating the 60% of the book that I really liked, it would probably have been a nine. Um, But I I docked it a point just because of the... I figure that's why I was going to do that, but I was like, nah, son, like I'm not, I don't want to do that. It's too good not to do that too. Like you said, I'm also super excited to figure out where the sequel is going to go from here and where the, the series is going to go. It's definitely one we're going to be reading the entirety of, and maybe we'll do some bonus reviews later on of the, uh, for sure. If not, I'm just going to get on here and just rave about how much I liked the other books. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> so that's our, those were our individual scores, which obviously, uh, you know, nine, eight, obviously our group scores an 8.5. Yeah, pretty highly rated book for us. We definitely recommend it. Uh, if you guys thought this sounded interesting, you should definitely go check it out. 
Uh, but with that, we've actually gotten to the end of our episode. Thank you so much for listening. We are Badass Literature Society. Hopefully you liked the episode. If you did, let us know. Uh, leave us a, a comment on Instagram or Facebook or leave us a rating uh, or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Uh, that's really important to us. So it, it, uh, if you did like it or if you didn't, uh, let, let us know. If you've got a book recommendation or you've got something that you think would be interesting for us to talk about in a bonus episode, let us know as well. Either get us on Instagram or Facebook. Our handle in both places is at BadassLitPod, or you can send us an email. You can find that link on both our Instagram and our Facebook. But uh, with that, we'll see you guys next month. I'm Michael. This is Barbara. Bye. Bye.